The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Lord God, you are the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth. We are thankful that we can live as worshipers of you because we have been reconciled to you through the blood of your Son on the cross for us. We are so thankful for your amazing sovereign grace in our lives that we recognize we do not deserve. So today, as we study your word, may your name be high and lifted up. I pray that these would be not just mere academic principles, but that we would sense the power and the truth behind what we are about to look at from your word. I am so thankful, Lord, for each person here that cares about helping other people, and I would ask that you would use this day and this whole conference in their lives to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, Lord, I know also that there are people here that have a painful past, and even being at this conference is causing uh, tension in their lives because they are having to think about things that maybe they've wanted to bury and not really deal with. Uh, give them grace, Lord, to trust you as we talk about the past. So we commit this time to you now. May the words of my mouth the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me start by telling you the story of a pastor from many years ago that I know quite well. <clears throat> when uh, he finished seminary, he just uh, had a deep desire to serve the Lord with his whole life. Uh, he had grown up in a pastor's home, so... He knew what it was like to, to be a pastor, um, and the Lord called him to his first senior pastor uh, ministry. He had already been on staff of a larger church, but now it's his time to be a teaching pastor, and he uprooted his family from one state and moved his family to another state, and pretty soon uh, he realized that uh, there were going to be challenges in this new church. This church had been the split off another church, and as a young pastor, with all of his zeal, he thought, well, I can lead them, there won't be any problems. Uh, but he soon began to realize that there was a lot of dissatisfaction in the church. After the honeymoon was over, after about a year and a half of experiencing the new ministry, uh, he started to get complaints about his ministry, and he started hearing things like, uh, you're not loving enough, or worship doesn't get enough emphasis in the church. But then the missions committee would come back and say, no, missions doesn't get enough emphasis in the church. This pastor, though, thought that uh, because he had been trained well, he'd grown up in a pastor's home, he knew what pastoral ministry was to be like, so he very dutifully did all of his responsibilities. He did hospital visits. He thought that he pushed missions a lot in the church, um, tried to deliver very faithful expository messages, uh, but still he was getting complaints. Worship isn't getting enough emphasis. Missions isn't getting enough emphasis, emphasis. But then the youth committee would come back and they would say, no, it's the youth. They're the future generation. They need the most emphasis in the church. Then, the anonymous letters started to come. And then, people started voting with their pocketbooks. You know what that is, right? Uh, the church budget started to suffer because there was many, much dissatisfaction in the church. The anonymous letters were saying things like, uh, you'd be a better third grade teacher. Um, there were long, long, long elders' meetings. I know some of you have been there and done that. Uh, there were long, long congregational meetings. 
many sleepless nights, lots of emotional turmoil. Uh, his family was being impacted. In fact, one of his little children said to his mommy, um, why is it that people don't like daddy? Um, the pastor started asking himself questions like this. Am I really called to ministry? Am I cut out for this? Do I want to put my family through this? Um, after a number of months, probably six months of just these long meetings, etc., etc., uh, we the church finally called in a mediator, and uh, that did not go quite like the the pastor thought this was going to go. After about a month of negotiation, the mediator recommended that the pastor resign, even though the church had voted 82% to have the pastor stay. Um, so he's now in a place of resigned from the church. And after a couple of months of recuperating from all that had just happened over about a year with the previous church, he started to candidate at a new church. In a moment, a crucial moment came because he candidated at this new church and the new church actually voted that they wanted him to come by a huge majority in another state. Now a moment of crisis has come. And all of these questions started to flood his mind. Am I really called to ministry? Do I want to go through this again? Because he knew well, full well that this exact same thing could happen all over again. Now... Maybe uh, you've already guessed this, and you wonder, how do I know this story so well? <laughs> this story is me. And I'd like you to turn to Psalm 109, and I'd like, you to talk, I'd like to talk to you this morning from a psalm, not Psalm 109, but Psalm 28, but I'm going to Psalm 109 because it captures so well what I was experiencing at that time. And I want to talk to you about, a, use a psalm this morning that the Lord used to minister to me during those dark, dark days and talk about what we can learn from David in how to properly process the difficult circumstances of life. As I was studying for this message, I came across Psalm 109 as another Davidic psalm, and it, I thought, wow, that just really captures what I was experiencing. Listen to Psalm 109, verses 1 to 5. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. They've surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. Let me just stop there for a moment. I've told my wife many times through the years as a pastor that uh, I think the most painful thing for me as a pastor was to faithfully study God's Word in an effort to feed my flock good, strong, expository food from Scripture, but then have my sheep bite me. <laughs> That's very painful. Um, in return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Uh, if anybody knew about people problems, it's David, right? Uh, just out of curiosity, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 28. Uh, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. If anybody knew about people problems, it's David. And just out of curiosity in preparation for this message, I went through every Davidic psalm and I thought, I'm going to look at the context. There's 73 Davidic psalms. And I thought, I'll look at the context and ask myself, uh, how many of these psalms express people problems? So out of 73 Davidic psalms, think about this for a moment, 56 express problems with people. So, you know, we think about our past. I know you're sitting here with whatever the issues are from your past or your counselees as you're trying to help them process their past. It's almost inevitably about people, Right? It's how people have shaped us, uh, how people have hurt us. Uh, listen to David just for a moment. 
as I went through these Davidic Psalms, I kind of cataloged the things that he said about people. He talked about their hypocrisy. He talks about their treachery. He talks about being ambushed by people. Uh, he experiences sleepless nights. You don't have to read the Psalms very, very long, and you find David or the other writers of Psalms experiencing sleepless nights. That's just reality, right? As you're dealing with the problems of, of life. In another Psalm, David says he feels dread. He uses the word a number of times, betrayal. I was betrayed. In fact, some people think the context to Psalm 28 that we're going to look at is that horrible story with his son. Can you imagine? You're the king and your own son betrays you. Maybe the context that he's writing about here in Psalm 28 is the whole betrayal with his son Absalom. I mean, that's just hard to even comprehend your son trying to take over the government. Uh, a coup of the government by your own son. Uh, he talks about people setting traps for him. Even in this psalm, he talks about his friends betraying him. He uses this expression. He says, I feel torn apart. One of the things that seems to particularly bother David, and we saw that back in Psalm 109, is he's particularly hurt by the words of people. Over and over in the Psalms, he talks about being hurt by the words of people. Now, I find that interesting because we think of David, here's, you know, as Scripture says, here's David that's killed his thousands. And we think of him as a mighty, mighty warrior. And you go, what can hurt this tough guy? You know, he's Mr. Macho Man. What can hurt David? But David's a real person, and he's hurt by the tongues of people. Uh, I know what that's like, and I'm sure you know what that's like as well. So let's look at Psalm 28, and I've tried to keep the outline simple. I want to orient you to the psalm just to begin with and kind of take a flyover of the psalm. Then I'm going to resist the urge of looking at verses 1 to 5 in detail because there's so much in verses 6 through 9 that we need to look at, but I want to just spend a couple of minutes in verses 1 to 5, and I hope that this psalm ministers to your soul as it ministered to my soul during those dark days. Uh, we were even warned, my wife, this was 23 years ago right now, so I have it down to the months. I can give you the chronology of what happened during those dark days. It's 23 years ago right now. My wife was expecting our fifth child at that time, and the mediator warned us. He said, you might as well expect her to be a fussy baby. And guess what her nickname was after she was born? Her nickname at our new church was Screamy Face. Uh, she's one of the quietest children now that you could ever imagine, but uh, she sure did live up to what the mediator said. She was an extremely fussy child for the first months of her life. So let's just take a flyover of the psalm, orient ourselves to the psalm and what's going on in the structure of the psalm, hit a couple of quick things in verses 1 to 5, You'll notice in your outline, I've tried to give you some principles for making peace with your past or helping your counselees make peace with your past, but then I in particular want to just zoom in on verses 6 through 9 and camp on verses 6 through 9. So verses 1 to 5, typical Davidic psalm. You know what a typical Davidic psalm is? God, if you don't rescue me, I'm going to die. <laughs> he just says it over and over in the psalms. So he says here in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I'll become like those who go down to the pit. Uh, David feels like he's going to die. Uh, we're going to look at another psalm in just a few minutes where David says a very similar thing, but it's, it's probably even more picturesque there in that psalm that we'll look at. He's urgently pleading for an audience with the king. And then he's in the next verses, verses 3 through 5, he's crying out for justice. And I know you have to just really think through this whole imprecatory psalm thing. Uh, my wife could definitely relate to this during those days. My wife, as a pastor's wife, has written many letters in her mind to people, and they obviously never got sent. Um, but she sure can relate to the, to the anguish that David is experiencing here. 
So David's crying out in desperation, verses 1 to 5, and then verses 6 through 9, David is delivered. Very simple outline. And then under verses 6 through 9, the way I've chosen to divide it up is to look at, in this deliverance, what was David's role and what's the Lord's role? What did David do? And there's all kinds of words that describe actions that David took. And then there's all kinds of words to describe who the Lord is in the midst of the painful circumstances of life. Many, many wonderful promises that we can give to our counselees, the people we're discipling as we try to help them deal with the painful circumstances of life. Now let's go back to verses 1 to 5 and just think through these in a little bit more detail. Let me show you first of all how serious this is. The, the amount of pressure that David is feeling. So I already read verse 1. And then look at this. This is intense. Verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications. When you think supplications, this is an intense word for prayer. When you think supplication, think someone supplicating a king. Think hands uplifted. He's already said that he's crying out to the Lord. In verse 1, he says he's calling out to the Lord. There's some passion. There's some intensity here. He's supplicating the Lord. But then this really clues us in on how intense it is in verse 2 when he says, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And by the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard Update in case you wonder what is that strange translation that he's using. Your holy sanctuary. How do I know this is intense for David? Because this is a rare word that's used only of the holy of holies. So he is, I picture David crying, calling out to the Lord with uplifted hands as he faces the Holy of Holies because that represents the very presence of God. He's in deep anguish in his soul. He feels very betrayed as we're about to look at. Uh, people have betrayed him. And now he's crying out to the king. He's desperate for the king to intervene and help him. Um, let me just make a, a quick comment here, and I really want to resist the urge of spending too much time on these first verses, but stoic is not spiritual. <laughs> Being stoic and stifling all those emotions, it, you know, we can have a tendency to think, I'll just stuff it. Well, you don't see that modeled in the Psalms. Here is tough King David, the warrior who has killed thousands and he is crying. He is supplicating the Lord God. He is, he is honestly dealing with what's going on on the, in, on the inside. I appreciate that. I found it helpful uh, with, with counselees as I've listened to them and I've asked a lot of questions to try to understand what's going on in their, their life and to just try to to walk in their shoes of what are they experiencing as they're dealing with whatever happened in the past. And then I ask myself, okay, what psalm captures this counselee? What psalm really captures their experience? I read Psalm 109 to you. I mean, Psalm 109, 1 to 5, that it captures so many things that were going on in my mind as a pastor at that time. And then I, I ask people to take that psalm, once we figure out the psalm that really captures their experience, now use it as a model to write out your own prayer to the Lord. Don't keep all that stuff bottled up on the inside. Let's learn how to properly lament before the Lord. We see David lamenting here in the Psalms. He's properly dealing with his emotions and his, his grief. Now look at the next verses. How do we process imprecatory Psalms? And there's a lot of uh, theology here that we don't even have the time to get into, but let me just simplify it. Think of these as cries for justice. Think of him as, try, as, as crying out to God, Lord, where is justice? Uh, so he says in verse 3, Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors. So here's the hypocrisy that I talked about earlier. Can you relate to this? Have you ever had people pretend like they're your friend? on the, uh, the outside, and then you find out the person betrayed you behind your back. 
who speak peace with their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Pay them back. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. He's crying out for justice because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Uh, leads me to another principle as I think about how do we help people make peace with their past. My wife was talking during those very dark, dark days with one of our college professors, and he had been through a, as he was in pastoral ministry as well, and he had been through some very dark days, and he reminded my wife, Rose, he said, remember who keeps the record books. Uh, Remember who keeps the record books. You know what this tells me? If I remember there's someone who keeps the record books, he is the God of justice, as Scripture says. He will make things right. He will make things right. And if I really believe that, you know what that means? I do not have to punish people. I do not have to punish people. I do not have to remain bitter. You think about bitterness. What's happening with bitterness? At least part of what's happening with bitterness is I can't let that go because if I forgive that person, then it's like I'm saying it's all right, and I don't want to say it's all right, and if I remain bitter, it's like my way of punishing the other person. But if I remember that God keeps the record books, He is the God of justice, I can trust Him. I don't have to be bitter at people. Uh, someone said very wisely, bitterness is the pill we swallow hoping it will kill someone else. <laughs> I remember um, telling a, an elderly lady that one time, I mean, she was just struggling with bitterness because of the way a, her husband had been treated by a church and he had not been ministered to by a church when he was on his deathbed and she, uh, after he passed away, she came to our church, and she was just a bitter, bitter old woman. <laughs> just nasty to be around. And she and I had a lot of things in common. We enjoyed studying the American Civil War and talking about that. And I was pastoring in the South, you know, where they still call it the War of Northern Aggression. And um, <clears throat> she had other expressions for Yankees, which I won't use. Um, and I said, do those people in the church even know you're bitter? And she said, no. <laughs> uh, I, I gave her the line, bitterness is the pill we swallow, hoping it will kill someone else. And she goes, that is so true. This is just eating me up on the inside. But why do people remain bitter? Sometimes it's because I don't want to let this go because I'm mad at those people. Well, if I remember there's a God of justice, he will make all things right. In fact, why don't we look back at what Romans 12 says, and I want to take you to a number of New Testament passages here because these are not just Old Testament principles. The New Testament emphasizes the same, same things. If we remember there's a God of justice, I don't have to live with bitterness. Romans 12, 18 and 19. Let me start with verse 17 because it speaks so well to the theme of this conference and what do we do with the past and make pe making peace with the past. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In fact, just the opposite with your enemies, verse 20, be kind to them. Remembering there's a God of justice sure takes the pressure off me of feeling like I have to, to punish people. Let's uh, just camp now on the next verses. These are so rich. Verses 6 through 9. And again, what we're going to do is look at What's David's role in processing the circumstances of life? And then what's the Lord's role in 
helping David process the circumstances of life. So let me read verses 6 through 9 again. Notice all the descriptive words. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. We don't know if this comes... Uh, if there was a time break between verses 1 to 5, and then he came back and he finishes the psalm with this worship of, that the Lord did hear his prayer, and the Lord did deliver him. But now he's worshiping, and he says, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength. He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. I'll warn you before we get into these, there's some, at least for me, as I was wrestling through the circumstances, there were some thorny theological issues as a pastor I had to, to deal with. For, just to let you into my world a little bit, I, I remember those times and I'm reading Psalm 27, and it was like the words of Scripture were just popping off the, the, the page of Scripture to me and ministering to my soul. And I got to verse 7, and the Lord is my strength and my shield. And as I'm meditating on that, I began to think, well, if God's my shield, where do you hold a shield? You hold a shield in front of you. So if God is my shield, and He's the all-powerful God of the universe, why in the world am I experiencing this right now? How in the world did this get into my life if God is the almighty God of the universe? Those were the type of theological issues that I was trying to wrestle through during that time. Let's start thinking about it. David's role first. He's obviously praying. We've already talked about supplication. He's crying out to the Lord. Uh, the Lord has heard the voice of his supplication. To reinforce that these are New Testament principles, turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3. We won't take the time to turn to it, but the famous passage in Philippians chapter 4 for dealing with anxiety in our lives talks about with all prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to the Lord. That's not a stoic passage of Scripture. With all prayer and supplication, make your requests known to the Lord. But look at this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 8. And in particular, I want to focus on verse 12. Verse 8, to sum up, and we know the background of 1 Peter is the church under persecution. So it's a great, great book to take people to that are dealing with suffering in their lives. Because that's just like the theme, that's the context of 1 Peter. It's how do you deal with suffering in your lives? 1 Peter two ver, or 3, verse 8, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, same thing we read in Romans 12, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. That's been my default through the years when, I mean, there's been some people just say nasty things. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm kind of speechless when I'm standing there as the pastor and I, I'm like, wow, you're really saying that to my face right now. And so my default through the years has just been to go, God bless you. <laughs> um, I don't know what else to say sometimes. But give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 10. Let him who means to love life and see good days. Remember the context again is suffering. Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord, here's the verse I wanted you to hear. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. David's crying out to the Lord. He's supplicating the Lord. Here, Scripture tells us we can do the same thing. And he 
hears our prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Calling upon the Lord, supplicating the Lord in the midst of turmoil in our lives. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. This just fits so perfectly. Hebrews chapter 4, these same principles of calling out to the Lord. You knew we had to go here at some point, right? So what do we do? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, especially dealing with temptation in life. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what are we supposed to do? Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And that word jumps off the page because of Psalm 28. A number of times in Psalm 28, David is crying for mercy. I need grace right now, Lord, that we may receive mercy and, my, and find grace to help in time of need. What do we do with sufferers as we help people make peace with their past? We've got to teach them how to pray. We've got to teach them how to process this properly before the, the Lord. This is not about just being stoic and stuffing it. This is about maybe there's some really proper grieving that's got to go on. Some proper lamenting that, that goes on as they learn to properly process all of those emotions that are on the inside. Now, my favorite part of this is the next point, verse 7. So he's worshiping the Lord because the Lord has heard the voice of his supplication as he's praying, crying out toward the Holy of Holies. So he's worshiping now, and he says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. I'll come back to those in just a moment as we focus then on what the Lord's role was. But notice what David does. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. You know you're a little bit Bible geeky when you have a favorite Hebrew word. This is my favorite Hebrew word, batak, trust. Let's think about it for a moment. Absolutely rich, wonderful Hebrew word. There are a number of different Hebrew words for a life of faith or a life of trust in the Lord, but this is my favorite. It is, it is just alive. It is packed full of meaning. I gave you a little bit of room there in your notes to write down what this word means. It means to rest, to rely upon. You're, you have so much trust in the Lord. This is not just academic faith, like I know the promises of Scripture. This is, I know the promises of Scripture, and I am making an active choice to believe these promises of Scripture. I'll come back to that in a moment because that is absolutely crucial if we're going to help people make peace with their past. It's not just reciting the Bible to yourself and hoping like there's some kind of, as I chant this mantra of whatever your favorite Bible verse is to yourself, that God says he'll never leave me nor forsake me, he'll never leave me nor forsake me, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. That verse doesn't do you any good, that principle of scripture doesn't do any good unless by an act of the will you actually choose to believe it. I mean, you can recite the Bible to yourself all day long, but it's not going to unleash its power in your soul until by an act of the will you say, I really, really believe this. That's this Hebrew word, batak. It's, I believe the promises of God, and I am choosing to rest on them. It's actually used of someone who is at careless ease. They have... They, negatively, not positive trust, but you've you're gotten lazy. Careless ease. You, you're, you're, you're overly confident. Uh, be confident in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Be secure in the Lord, who David describes as his rock. Back in verse 1, as he's crawling out, calling out to the Lord, he says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. And I'll come back to that a moment in a moment as uh, we talk about things we need to warn people about with their past. But let's think more about this word trust for a moment. And how do we help people actively choose to trust the Lord? Uh, I've had hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people memorize this definition of trust by the wonder, wonderful, uh, in, from the wonderful book, Trusting God, uh, by Jerry Bridges. He says this, 
And you can tell that he's really thought these issues through biblically because as I've studied these Hebrew words for what does it mean to trust in the Lord, I think he captures it really well. This is the life of trust. He says this, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Now, let's uh, exegete Jerry Bridges here a little bit and go back through his definition. So join me. This is not passive. So a life of faith, as we study the, the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 11 and these, the great hall of fame of faith, they're not passive, are they? I mean, they are very active in choosing to do what God called them to do. They wouldn't be in Hebrews chapter 11 unless they had chosen to actually live out what their calling in life was by the Lord God. Trust is not a passive state of mind. This is not something that is just going to kind of come to you and all of a sudden you're this person of faith. But it is a vigorous act of the soul. Now, I've been taking my walk with the Lord seriously for many, many, many years now, and I can tell you I still have to work on my soul and, and choosing to believe the promises of God. Uh, we talk in our program about the difference between our formal theology and our functional theology. And uh, there's a lot of times where I've got to get myself uh, actually living out what I say I believe, that God is in control, He has plans and purposes that are uh, working out. Uh, it's a vigorous act of the soul. Fighting with your inner person. What are you fighting with your inner person to do? To choose to lay hold on the promises of God. Uh, David talks to himself, right? And uh, you've heard it said before, it's, it's okay to talk to yourself, just don't answer yourself. Uh, but David does both, doesn't he? He talks to himself and he answers himself. Uh, he says things like, why are, you in, you know, why are you disturbed, O my soul? And then he says, the writers of the Psalms say, rest in God. It's a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to lay hold on the promises of God. Let me stop there just for a moment. And here's a common thing I've run into in, in counseling is I've, let's just say the issue is sleeplessness. And I'm talking to somebody they wake up in the middle of the night, maybe it's because they're dealing with their past and they're really struggling with the issues of life and what's going on in their life. And I've been teaching them this definition of trust and what it means to trust the Lord. And I'll say, you know what you need to do when you're, you're in bed and you can't sleep? You've got to get out of bed. And you need, which is hard by itself because you're just fighting for sleep, but you've got to get out of bed and you need to go spend time in prayer, and you need to read some scripture. And I've actually had a couple of different people stop me right at that point, and they say, I've tried that, and it doesn't work. And I know right away, when they say that to me, they do not know how to use scripture. Because it's not just getting out of bed and praying, and like reading the Bible and hoping like it's some kind of magical formula that if I read the Bible, it'll calm down my soul. It's reading scripture and then telling your soul, I believe this. It's a vigorous act of the soul. You have to fight for it. A vigorous act of the soul. As our friend John Piper would say, you've got to fight for joy. You want peace in your inner person. It's a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to lay hold on the promises of God. And then guess what? Your inner person is not going to give up because you may get yourself to the place, you know, I think I really believe this. I really, really believe that God says he'll never leave me nor forsake me or that he says he's my strength and my shield. And you, you sense your soul starting to calm down and then 30 seconds later, but, but what about this? So what do you have to do? You have to cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. So that leads me to some principles as we help people make peace with their past. What are the promises that you will choose to believe? What are the promises that you need to choose to believe? This psalm, many psalms, are full of, of promises. 
very key question. In this psalm, David calls the Lord his rock. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. I found that it's so easy in times of suffering as we deal with the, the issues of life to make other things my rock. To turn to other things as the escapes or the things to hold me stable in life. In your notes, I gave you a couple of different extra handouts. Let me show you one, and I'd like you to go back to another, <clears throat> another psalm, Psalm 18, just for a moment. Look at Psalm 18 with me, and I, I gave you a sample homework assignment in your notes that you can use with others. Because as, as people are dealing with the suffering of life, as they're dealing with the circumstances of life, I believe we have to warn them that it is so easy to look to other things to be our rocks and our refuges other than the Lord. Look at Psalm 18. <clears throat> and in this psalm, David is, it might even be more intense than the other psalm. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it's people problems again. In verses 4 and 5, he says, The cords of death encompass me. Waves of ungodliness terrified me. And I, I think he's talking about people there. Waves of unprincipled people are overwhelming me. The cords of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confront me. It's like he, he pictures himself being wrapped up with the cords of death and he's sinking. Now a, a key question comes. David, what are you going to do to deal with this intense pressure in your life? And in verses 1-3 to three, he says this. He makes the right choice. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So, and then he says, I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. What I did in this homework assignment is I went through each of these words, especially the metaphors of God, as rock, refuge, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn of salvation. And I give people what the word means in Hebrew. And then I ask some questions based upon those metaphors of in the pressure of life, what are you turning to as your rocks? What are you turning to as your strongholds? What do you look to to be your deliverer? What do you look to to be your shields in life? What is your horn of salvation? Etc. Because I want to warn people that there are so many things that we can try to escape to as we're processing the suffering, the pressures of life. And I hope that that homework assignment is helpful to you or helpful to your counselees. Um, and then I go back to Psalm 28, if you would. And let's look what David does now. As I was studying this back 23 years ago, really meditating my way through it, I was intrigued by the order of the words. So he's crying out to the Lord. He's choosing to believe that the Lord is certain things to him. Like, he does, this would have been a true statement. In verse 7, the Lord is a strength and a shield. Would that be a true statement? Absolutely. That would have been the truth of Scripture if he would have written it that way. But that's not what he writes. He says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. So he's doing exactly what, we, what Jerry Bridges tells us we need to do. He's choosing to believe the promises of God. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shield. In the midst of these horrible circumstances, the Lord, I'm choosing to believe it. So he's, he says, my heart trusts in him. Now notice the order of the words. My heart trusts in him. I am helped. And with, therefore my heart exalts. His emotions respond to believing the truth of Scripture. He chooses to believe. If we want to help people have peace with their past, if we want to help people deal with the circumstances of life, I help them have a vigorous trust of the Lord, and then the inner person starts to respond, and then as the inner person responds, what happens? We worship.
Praise God that he has intervened. Praise God that he delivered. Uh, there's so many good things that happened out of that circumstance at that other church. And you, I have another principle here. Don't you know that you're making peace with your past when you can actually start thanking the Lord for the circumstances? When you can actually start worshiping the Lord for, that this took, this took place? I became highly motivated to learn conflict resolution principles. Um, I thought, as I watched this mediator operate in my church, and he was just asking us to do, I thought, unbiblical things. Uh, for example, he wanted me to leave. I was, as the pastor, as the shepherd of the flock, he wanted me to leave the congregational meeting so that the congregation could stand up and say anything they wanted to say about me. And I thought, I'm not leaving the congregational meeting. First of all, I'm the shepherd of the flock, and I'm supposed to be leading the congregational meeting. And in Matthew 18 says, if somebody has a concern with me, they should come and talk with me. It just sounded so ungodly to me to just unleash people to say whatever they wanted during the congregational meeting. So I remember thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I was so thankful then to hear a number of years later about Peacemaker Ministries. And I thought, you know what? I want to study Peacemaker principles. And uh, after a pretty long process, praise God, the whole conciliation process has been complete now for a number of years. And guess what I get to do? I get to go help others as they're dealing with painful circumstances in life. I thank God. It took me a while to get there, but I thank God now for the painful circumstances that we went through. And I realized that it's just all part of the story that God was writing of our ministry and, and what he wanted to do with our lives. And I'll tell you a story about that in conclusion as we wrap things up here in just a little bit. But you know you're dealing with the pain of the past when you can actually worship, when you can actually express praise to God that he was up to something good in the midst of that. Uh, David exalts in the Lord. He worships the Lord because he sees the principles of Scripture as being so alive and active. Now let's switch gears a little bit and ask ourselves, we've seen David's role. He's actively, vigorously fighting to believe the promises of Scripture. He's speaking truth to himself. He's, again, he's fighting for it. He's properly crying out to the Lord, properly lamenting to the Lord, and he's worshiping the Lord then when he sees the Lord respond. Now let's switch gears and think about what's the Lord's role in all this. Isn't it beautiful, as we saw back in 1 Peter 3 already, David says it here, God hears the voice of my supplication. There is a true and living God who is listening to the pleas of his people, and he cares. Uh, he hears. And then verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Now, this is another uh, very interesting Hebrew word. In fact, ladies, uh, you'll like this one. In Genesis chapter 2, this is the same word, or it's related to the word in Genesis 2, where it says that women are a helpmeet to their husband, uh, an azar. A, an ally. Now, ladies, just give you something to laugh about and get the men all mad at me. But here's one of the definitions that I found of this Hebrew word of ally or azar, and it's true back in Genesis chapter 2 as well. As one comforts the miserable and destitute. <laughs> How do you like that, ladies? What's an azar? An ally. The one who's called alongside of to comfort the miserable and destitute. If my wife was here, she would go, amen. <laughs> uh, what does the Lord do? He's the ally. He's the comforter. He comes alongside of people as the helper. He rescues people from death-like experiences. Uh, that's what we're seeing in Psalm 18 and Psalm 28. There's a it's like a death-like experience here. He's grieving because of what's going on in his life, and he's praising God then because God is his azar, his ally, his helper. So God hears. God intervenes. God promises to give strength. 
I mean, there were many times during that horrible time, many dark nights, and I thought, I just cannot go on. I just cannot go on. I have another elder meeting tomorrow night, and then we have a congregational meeting Sunday night. Lord, I cannot go on. Well, here I am, 23 years later, and I'm still alive, and God had purposes for it. He gave strength. Lord, the Lord says he's my shield. A number of different Hebrew words for shield. This one pictures David so well as the, the warrior. This is the small, the King James translates it, buckler. And just can't you see David with this little shield? This is not the full body shield. This is David with his shield. And he's believing that the Lord is his shield. As I got to that, I really had to wrestle through Okay, the Lord, if you're my shield, why are these things in my life? You're the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe. Why am I experiencing this, this pain in life? Lord, I was just try- I'm just trying to do my duties as a pastor. I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to be a faithful expositor of Scripture. I'm pushing missions, I'm teaching the Bible, I go to visit people in the hospital. Why in the world is this happening? And then, after a while, because uh, I can have a thick head, it finally took a while for it to sink in. If God is almighty, and I believe that, if it got by the shield, it must be part of his plan for my life. This is absolutely part of his plan for my life. And that leads me to another thing that I gave you as a, a sample assignment is what's the story that the Lord is writing in your counselee's life? What is the story that the Lord's writing in your life with the painful circumstances? On page 25 of the notes is a little tool that I use for doing data gathering. If you uh, tell people you want to hear their story, and I am a college professor, so I know how to spell story, I really do, but I, I use this as an acronym, as a way to to gather data from people. I even send this out ahead of time, and I tell them, I'm really looking forward to meeting with you, and I'm excited about what the Lord's going to do during our meetings, but could you tell me your story? And I found that people really, really enjoy telling their story. Plus, it gives me a lot of good information. So what's the situation? What's the circumstances? How are you processing it mentally? What do you think about it? What do you think about others? What are you thinking about God? What are you thinking of yourself? How are others involved in this circumstance? How is this impacting other people? How are you responding? How are you reacting to the situation? What are the main emotions you're dealing with? And what are your expectations? And that's where I'm trying to get at heart themes with the person. You know, I found that the Lord was writing a story for my life. Let me just tell you a little bit more about that story. So David says the Lord's his shield. Obviously, the Lord in his sovereign wisdom wanted this to be part of David's life because of the story that David, uh, the way David wanted, or the Lord wanted to use David's life. And just think about that for a moment. If David would not have had people problems, we would not have, what did I say it was? 56 Psalms. Psalm 42 I find interesting, even though it's not a Davidic psalm, it's a song of the sons of Korah, and we sing a beautiful little worship song from it, as the deer pants after the water brooks. Realize when you sing that song that that was birthed in pain. Uh, Songs come from pain and suffering. Some of the principles that have helped me with this is remembering things like this, God wastes no pain. God wastes no pain. I can be a sadistic professor, and sometimes I write that on the board as I'm giving, about to give a quiz on campus, and I remind my students, God wastes no pain in your life. Or Psalm 42 again, from suffering springs a song. What's the song that the Lord wants to write with all the pain in your counselee's life? It's not, he does not want to waste it. He does not waste pain. Our Lord's Crucifixion on the cross is the ultimate example of that, that God wastes no pain. Let me tell you a little bit more of my story. And this ties right in with the last word there, that the Lord is our shepherd. I'll get to that in conclusion. 
In fact, as I'm telling you a little bit more of my story, turn to Genesis 48. With this, we'll wrap up. Genesis 48. So I became very interested in conflict resolution. Became very interested in how do we help people do relationships in a more healthy way. Uh, that motivated me to study, study deeply peacemaking principles. I said to, I've said to my wife many times through the years, if the Lord can use this story, if the Lord can use this pain and suffering in the lives of other pastors to help them, praise, praise God. Uh, Genesis 48.15 says this, Jacob says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. I hope that's exactly what I can say at the end of my life. The God who's been my shepherd. Just as Psalm 28 says, God is shepherding. He's involved in my life. He's actively involved in writing the story of my life. Uh, I wear uh, on this hand a very special ring. I wear a special ring on this finger too, but a very special ring on this finger. This was given to me a few years ago by a couple a pastor and his wife were having severe marriage problems. Uh, they work on the Navajo reservation, so that's why it's turquoise and, and silver. And they gave that to me because of the Lord, the way the Lord intervened in their life because I was able to do a marriage mediation and see their marriage get stabilized. I would have never been motivated to put in all the work to study biblical conflict resolution principles and to go through the whole grueling process of becoming a certified conciliator if it hadn't been for that church situation. The Lord has a story for pain. He wastes no pain in our lives. Here's what I'd like you to do in conclusion. There's one other homework assignment I gave you as an example as well. Um, it's on the back of the story form, and it's um, the definition of trust by Jerry Bridges and it's how to help counselees grow in their life of trust of the Lord. I hope that's helpful as well. Here's what I'd like to do in conclusion. We've seen David crying out in desperation. And then we see the Lord intervene, and he's delivered. We've seen David's role. We've seen the Lord's role. What I'd like you to do just for a moment is I'd like you to look back through your outline I'm a biblical counselor, so I like to get people to do stuff with what they actually heard. Um, look back through the outline and just pray for a moment, and then I'm going to pray for you. What's one or two things, based upon the principles you just saw from Psalm 28, that you know you need to work on? Just mark it. What's one or two things as you look back over the outline? Now, Here's what I'd like you to do. Just take a moment or two, and then I'll close in prayer. We're just going to be silent here for a moment. I'm going to let you talk to the Lord. What is it? Why don't you just pray that principle back to the Lord right now? What is it that you need to pray back to the Lord? Lord, I know I need, to, I need my life of faith to be more than just academic. I need to fight harder to trust you. I need to believe that you're writing a story with this pain. I need to really believe that you are, in, you, you are in this. You are my shepherd. You are in it. What do you need to pray to the Lord? Why don't you pray that back to him just for a moment? Lord God, you hear our prayer. Thank you. You are the true and living God. It is so amazing to us as your creation that we can be in relationship with you as the creator God of the universe. Thank you for that rich blessing in our lives. Help us to live today as if we truly believe it and that your inspired word, your inerrant word has principles that give us guidance as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path of how to navigate the difficult issues of the past. I pray for your flock here 
I know you love them and you care for them. And Lord, I know in this room there are people who are processing things from the past. Help them to do that, Lord, in a way that brings honor to you. And then for all of us, as we come alongside of others to try to be disciplers of others and help them with the difficult issues of, past, of the past, help, them, help us, Lord, to be both loving and very faithful to the principles of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.